So, it's Father's Day, um, and everyone has a father. Uh, some, of them, some of us know them well, some of, them, some of us don't. Um, some of us had good fathers, some of us not so great. Um, but what we do have in common when we come to Christ is we get a, a new father, we get the perfect father. Um, and so my kids, uh, well, my daughter gave me a, a Father's Day card. Um, and of course, Father's Day cards are supposed to be, you know, about the father and, uh, and, and build them up and encourage them because sometimes we, we, we may not get the encouragement we need during the year. And so Father's Day, this day that our kids actually say how well we've been doing. So I'm going to read what my daughter wrote as an encouragement and uh, an uplifting moment to me. Father's Day again. So, just like I said last year, one in a million, greatest out of everything, number one dad, blah 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 love from me. More of the same next year. Happy Father's Day, Dad. You've always been like a father to me. I love how we don't even need to say out loud that I'm your favorite child. It's a real special bond we share. You are by far the best dad I could have asked for until you start dancing. I'm joking, but you might want to get some lessons. But seriously, I love you so much, and we're really lucky to have you as a dad. I hope your Father's Day is as fun as your life was before you had kids. Lots of love. Bell, bell. So here we have a moment for my daughter. To <laughs> and as I came down here today, I said to my daughter, I said, it's no, I went up to Isabel and I said, listen, Isabel, you don't need to be embarrassed. And then I walked away because she didn't know that I was going to read this out today. So there you go, Isabel. I had my last revenge. Um, so Father's Day. <laughs> okay, yeah, she will outlive me. Um, so in light of that, we want to now look at the good news of what it means to, to have God as a father. And last week I um, spoke about what I called the, the bad news um, of the finger of God. And uh, can I just have the water, please? <laughs> Sorry, I'm already... Um, and we're all talking about, uh, from the, the book of Daniel, uh, Daniel chapter 5, and we're speaking about uh, the, the story about the writing is on the wall, where the finger of God appears among the people who are celebrating a parting in front of this King Belshazzar, and the finger of God writes on the wall. Um, and, it's a, and it's a famous story, it's where we have the saying, the writing is on the wall, which means it may not be over yet, but it may as well be over because nothing else is possible from here on out. So here's this story we have, the writing is on the wall, Belshazzar has taken the things that symbol value um, to the people of uh, Israel and he's discarded them as absolute worthless value. He's taken the, the gold 
cups that were dedicated to the temple in Jerusalem, and with premeditated thought and with uh, intention in his heart to bring this God who had a temple in Jerusalem to nothing, he brings these vessels into his big party and pretty much values God at zero. And then the story goes on that immediately, as soon as they made God worth nothing, God actually had a problem with that. And he turns up in the form of his hand, comes into the room and starts writing on this illuminated wall that was the only clear wall, perhaps, or certainly one of the only walls that were clear of nothing on it, no, no idols, no objects, no nothing on this wall, completely blank, almost ready for something to go there. And a lamp illuminating and the hand comes in and writes on the wall. And, and we hear about Belshazzar, he, he gets so, so nervous, so uh, um, distressed, so scared that it speaks that his, his knees knocked together. Uh, so fearful was he at what he was seeing. And he couldn't answer it, but this... Uh, um, Daniel, the, the prophet or the uh, advisor, came to interpret what the words on the wall meant. And the words were, mene, mene, tikul, presin. And it's interesting that, um, I don't know if I mentioned it last week, um, I mentioned Belshazzar's name means, may Bel protect the king, which Bel was the head god of the pantheon of gods in Babylonian times. Um, but Daniel's name was God is my judge. So here we have this guy who's looking for a false gods to protect his kingship, which it doesn't. And here comes Daniel, who is from the true God, whose name means God is my judge, and pronounces a judgment on this king whose God cannot protect him. And the judgment is quite interesting because the judgment is all about value. And this story is all about value. If you devalue the things of God... Without you even knowing, it actually is devaluing yourself, you. You're devalued as well. And God shows this quite clearly that Belshazzar valued God at nothing. And so God gave the same judgment back to Belshazzar. Mene, meaning your days are numbered. In fact, your days are coming to an end. Belshazzar had valued God and he had valued your days. And I've numbered them, and the number I give them is zero. That very night, Belshazzar was killed as the Persians invaded. Tekel, which means weighed in the balances and found wanting. Belshazzar had valued and weighed God at nothing. God had wailed his moral worth and declared it nothing. Perez, which means counted or to count your possessions. Belshazzar had counted God's possessions as nothing. God tore the kingdom from Belshazzar, gave all his possessions to another. He counted his, his possessions as nothing. So here we have this story that is all about when you value God as nothing, you actually have no value at all. The value you come to possess can only be coming through how much you value God. 
And I had this little phrase in my head um, as I was, I, was, I was doing the sermon last, last week, and it was, when the finger of God does appear, take heed, for the judge is near. When the finger of God does appear, take heed, for the judge is near. And the whole story of last week, the bad news is this, is when the finger of God points, the judge is coming and he's going to judge. And if your values don't line up with his, the judgment is zero. You don't value his things, therefore you have become the value of nothing. The bad news is, when the finger of God appears, judgment is right around the corner. So today, we're going to speak about the good news. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming, and there is nothing you can do to stop it. But there is good news that comes in to save us. So we're going to read from... John chapter 8. They went, uh, let me start at verse 2. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and sat down and, uh, and he taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses, uh, now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? We're going to hold it there, just, and we'll go on and read the rest in a bit. I want to give you a bit of a context of this story. I want to give you a, a picture of how this story is set up. Now, in John's gospel, we've had a lot of confrontations between Jesus and the Pharisees. But in this story, the Pharisees have come to Jesus and they've come because they know that the law has been written and given to them. And we spoke about last week how the finger of God wrote the Ten Commandments on tablets of stone. And the law was about valuing or protecting that which you value. And the laws of God was to protect that which is valued to him, protects values. That's what law does. In this land, we have laws, and the law is to protect what we value. Often the law is to protect life, because that's what we value. And so the Pharisees are coming, and the scribes are coming, and they're coming with what there's written by the finger of God, which would be to protect value. But law is also about passing judgment if you don't value those things. And so here they're coming with a, a, with a heart to say, we are of the law. We are the ones who are obeying the finger of God. Now let's see what you would do. And this is a, a, um, a situation they put Jesus in, which is what they've tried to do is put him in an impossible situation. Because though the law of Moses says that this lady should be stoned, at that point they're under Roman occupation. And they're not allowed to execute anyone under their law. And this is why Jesus had to go before Pontius Pilate. He was not able to be killed by the Jews. Caiaphas could not crucify Jesus. Caiaphas could not stone Jesus. He must go to the Roman authorities. So here we have a story where the Pharisees and the scribes know that if Jesus agrees with the law of Moses, he cannot execute this lady anyway because they're under Roman rule and it is illegal to do. 
And so here they are coming to trick Jesus, to try and trap him. And we see here that there's a, a, an issue that's taking place. An issue that's coming up here right at the start of the story is that they're coming to Jesus with an external issue. But they're not seeing that the issue is internal. See, this is not an external exercise. This is an internal issue that's coming before them and they have failed to see that this is an internal issue. The problem that comes up often when we try to apply the law from an external position is that there is no change in the person who tries to apply that. And we see that in our day and age. We see it often is there is more laws now in the last 60 years than there has been in this country of laws for the rest of our existence as a nation. In the last 60 years, there is more law than the rest of the existence of the United Kingdom. Because what we fail to realize is that we're not coming up against an external issue, putting more laws up. The issue is there is an internal problem that the law can't solve here. And we try and get around this in our country by putting more laws in place. Because perhaps if we put enough laws in place, it'll prevent people from doing what is not right. But once again, this is not an external issue. This is an internal issue. More laws, more rules, more of these external uh, commands are not going to solve the issue. And I don't know about you, but in our day and age, we have almost a mindset that I've seen where people just go, there's no law against that, so I'll do it until they put a law there. And in things as simple as, we've had a law recently, haven't we, with a mobile phone. You can't use your mobile phone in the car. You can't text whilst driving. And people say, until there's a law that says I can't text, it's all right. Yet we've got plenty of laws and plenty of common sense that says if you're texting whilst trying to drive a dangerous vehicle at the same time at a speed that will kill people, it's probably common sense that you should probably concentrate on the thing that's important in that situation. And it's not telling your wife you're going to be late. It's driving the car. Now, I must confess that I have done that in the past where I've texted and I drive. And I was at university, this is years ago, I was at university thinking at this age in my life, I'm in my early 20s, I'm thinking, I'm invincible. It doesn't, does, those things don't count to me because I can do these things quite easy. I can do both of these. I'm driving down the road, I'm driving and texting. And the next moment I find myself, I've hit into the concrete barrier that goes down the middle of the road. And I've bumped into it and I've come back and I've looked up and I'm, and I'm fine. I've not, I've not hit anyone. I've not come off. And in that moment, I realize, oh, that's why they say don't text and drive. It's not so safe. Lacking common sense as I did then didn't help. And this is where we have this problem of putting a rule in place. Now people go, there's a law there. There's a rule in place. People will do the right thing now. We've we've put something there so they won't be able to do that anymore. 
But it's not an external issue. It's an internal issue. It's an issue of the heart. And this was known right back uh, from, the, from, the, from very early on in Scripture. They knew that this was an issue of the heart. And in Proverbs 3, we have uh, most likely King Solomon writing these Proverbs. And in Proverbs 3, he writes this, My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace I will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. So back right back then, even King Solomon knew that this was not an external issue. More laws wouldn't help. There had to be some, something changed. There had to be something that was an internal recalibration. There must be something internal that was law. There must be some way that the law could get inside because the external was not actually changing anything. And the interesting thing as I was looking at this um, as we go to, to 2 Kings, well, I'll just I'll tell you the story. 2 Kings 23. And we have this king, Josiah. Now, Josiah is uh, an amazing king who, who does a great reform in, the, in, the, in Israel at the time. Uh, the, the kings before him had been going all the wrong ways. They had been doing whatever they saw was best. They had been following whatever rules they wanted to. And here came the moment when he was decided that he'd do up the temple of God. He says, come on, guys, let's, like, we can't neglect the temple. Let's do it up. And in the process of doing up the temple, they find a scroll that has a law on it, a law that they had neglected for many years. And Josiah was cut to the heart. And he says, what have we done? Why have we not put these laws in our heart? Why have we not been transformed from the within? And Josiah gets everyone together and says, people, we need to change. We need these laws to be in our hearts. And he says, now, I'm going to declare before you, Lord, that we would follow these commandments and we would do it with our whole heart. And he wanted an internal change because he knew the external was no good. And Josiah was actually the last good king of Judah. Because after Josiah came the very king that Nebuchadnezzar conquered that we heard about last week. Nebuchadnezzar came very soon after Josiah's death. But here is a man who said, there is a problem here. If the law is not written on our heart, we forget it. He saw there was an internal issue. So how do we get this perspective change? How do we get the law from being an external thing that constrains us or stops us doing what we want? How do we get the external to now become internal? How do we get the external become internal? If we look in Mark 7, we have an interesting story. Mark 7, verse 6. And this is a story where the 
Once again, the scribes and the Pharisees have come to Jesus. They're trying to trip him up. They're trying to trap him. They're trying to make him look like a fool. And they, they come to Jesus and they've come and they're thinking, uh, we've got him here. We've got him again. Because his disciples aren't following the law. And Jesus is saying that we must do what God commands us to do. Here's this teacher. Jesus himself is saying that we must follow and obey God with all that we are. So let's trap him. Let's say, why aren't your disciples doing this then? And they say, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of elders, but eat with defiled hands? And Jesus said to them, well, did Isaiah Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it is written, this people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of man. You leave the commandment of God and hold fast to the the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. An external issue that they've tried to solve by putting traditions around it to try and trap any or get around any uh, particular uh, law that people might be able to swerve by. But the problem is, traditions don't always help. And in in fact, what Jesus is saying here is, tradition has actually been replaced by the commandment to obey God. Uh, I remember there was one law um, that came down as tradition, is that you couldn't travel more than, I can't remember exactly, so many miles, I think it was five miles or, or so many miles in a day, on the Sabbath day. You couldn't travel more than five miles in a Sabbath day. Unless you were over water because the tides and the currents might take you further than that and there's no real way at that time to be able to judge how far you'd gone. So if you're over water, it was okay. You could travel further. Just, but this was part of the do not work on the Sabbath, keep the Sabbath holy. So they thought we'll get around this by putting laws in place how far you could travel on land, but over water you could go further because um, of tides and currents. And so what you get now sometimes in Israel is these devout Jews who are keeping the laws and the traditions will drive their cars around. And of course, nowadays driving, it's far easy to get five miles a day. It's very easy to get five miles in a day if you're driving. But because the tradition says that if you're over water, you may travel further, they get a bottle of water and they place it under their car seat. (laughs) And then they drive around. But I'm over water, so it doesn't count anymore. Here is a a, a situation where they've seen the external laws, they've taken traditions to try and show that, but they've missed the very heart of what is supposed to be presented here. The heart of it is that we would be governed internally by what is written on our hearts, not that it had to be external to, to force us to do these things. And Jesus is saying here that you have left the commandments of God. There's something happening here where there is a a choice to instead of walking towards what God has said, they're walking away and going towards what man has said. The traditions of men is more important than what God has first asked us to do. And Jesus says, as he quotes Isaiah, their heart 
is far from me. When we run after the things of men, when we run after the commands and traditions of men, we leave far behind God. Our heart is not with God. And this is where our actions condemn us. God does not condemn us. But when we choose to leave his commands, when we choose to take our heart far from him, our actions is what condemns us. And if we go back and read the rest of that story, with this in mind, our actions is what condemns us. This is why. So the Pharisees have come with the scribes. And this, they brought this lady before him. This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. The very thing they're doing is they don't care about this lady. They don't care about the law. They don't care about whether this lady is right or wrong. All they care about is that they want to trap Jesus and, 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 and get him in trouble. They're not coming with a heart that the law requires. They're coming with the traditions of men's heart, the heart that says we can do this in our own thoughts, in our own way, and the heart condemns them. And then Jesus does this thing and he bends down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And here again, the finger of God has entered into history. And here again, the finger of God is writing in a place that is illuminated and is bare, spare, ready to be written on. And he bends down and he writes in the ground. Now, we don't know what he wrote. We don't need to know what he wrote. Whatever he was writing, it didn't seem to have that impact in the people who were there accusing this lady because it goes on to say, They continued to ask him, and he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. Now there seems to be a moment there when he's writing on the ground, and they would have seen what he's writing, but they understood it not. And when he says to them, You with who are without sin throw the first stone, it almost as if what he's written now has some impact that they understand that there's, there's almost like the interpretation becomes obvious. And that the, the early church father, Augustine, says that he sees this as when God wrote on the ground, it was as if he was preparing to write in the hearts of men because from dust we come and to dust we go. And as Christ writes in the dust, he's preparing for that day where he'll write on the hearts of men. John Calvin didn't really like um, Augustine saying that because he thought it was it diminished too much of what Jesus was doing there. It focused too much on just this natural writing in the dust as if it was uh, more than that. And because it doesn't illuminate it more, John Calvin says that it is not the importance what was written on the dust. The importance is that the hearts of the men who had come to accuse were revealed. Another Bible teacher um, by the name of Swindle, he, he writes that he 
likes the thought that Jesus was probably writing down things that the people who could read it would see that their life was like. And perhaps that the, when he wrote on the ground, he wrote liar and then looked up at one of the accusers. Then he wrote adulterer and looked at someone else. And then he wrote murderer and looked at one another and looked at someone else. And he says that actually as he writes on the ground, people realize that they themselves have come to accuse by the law, but the law actually accuses them. And one by one, it says, they went away. And it's interesting that once again, when the finger of God comes, you have a choice because judgment has come in this moment. Jesus is making a judgment call here upon the lives of everyone who was there and still upon the lady who was brought before him. Here he is making a judge. The finger of God has come and judgment is near. And there is an opportunity right here and right there for them to either go towards the judge or away from the judge. And it says, they went away. One by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Just like when the writing was on the wall for King Belshazzar, just now as the writing was on the dust on the ground from Jesus before the Pharisees and the scribes and this lady, there are three things that seem to come up in these stories that seem to connect together. And you can even bring it in with the, the story of Moses and God writing on the tablets of stone. One thing that seems to be here is illumination, light is shining. For Belshazzar, it describes a lamp shining on the wall. Here we go on and the very next verses in John's Gospel, it says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. The very light of the world is here illuminating upon these people. What is Revealed, what is exposed. For the external to be internalized, we need the light of Christ to shine. We need a light to shine because anything written in darkness cannot be read. The law has no impact in darkness. Only in light does it have an impact. And so we need illumination. The light of the world has come that he may light up and that we may see what he writes. This is the first thing we need to take the external and internalize it. The second thing we need is space. We need somewhere for the finger of God to write. If there is no space, like on, in Belshazzar's day, there was a blank wall. And as I understood, that was not common. It was common for everything to be covered with either tapestries or idols or gold or shields or something to declare how great and how magnificent the empire was. And it was rare to have the blank. And yet here we have a blank wall. We have a lamp illuminating. There is an opportunity to see the hand of God. Here we have the light of the world standing among people. They may see the illumination of what Jesus is writing. 
These are the two things we need. Light to shine, a place God can write. And these Pharisees had neither. Neither could they see the light, although the light shined at that moment. But most certainly they had no space because they had filled it with the traditions of men. Their heart was far from him. There was no space for God to write on, so the only direction they could go was away. There was no space to see the writing of God. The third thing you need is direction. You either need to be going towards God or you're going away from God. You need illumination, space, and direction for God to write in the hearts of men, for God to take something that is external and make it internal. He needs to be near enough that his finger can actually write on the heart of man. That requires closeness. That requires a direction your life is pointing. And this is a good news. Here is a lady who is caught in adultery, condemned. By law, could be stoned. And here is Jesus saying, that he is illuminating. She has not gone away. She has stayed near so that now that when she hears the words, that there is a transformation internally. And we see this when Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. A change happens when we allow the illumination of God to ride on the space of our heart as we go towards him and in a nearness to him that changes us for the rest of our lives. The direction that we go after the illumination and the space of God right written on our heart is a direction that is continually towards him. God does not say that what this lady did was okay. He says, forgiveness has come to you, now do it no more. The power of forgiveness is that now we can sin less. Now we have the ability that we don't do these things again. And then we have these amazing verses that come to us. We have 2 Corinthians 3, verse 3, and it says this. And you show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. So here is this transformation that God is saying he wants to do. Here's a transformation Jesus is saying he wants to do. He wants to take what is external, which cannot change, which cannot actually help us, and he wants to now take that and not put it externally on tablets of stone, but he wants to take it and put it on human hearts so that it is us, it is within us, it is who we are. We are now transformed because we are near the one who writes on our hearts. So how do we get near to this one? How do we get near to the one who can write on our hearts? Well, we go to Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10, verse 11. When Christ had offered all 
when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for the time until his enemies should be made footstools for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit bears witness to us, for after saying, uh, for after saying, and this is from Jeremiah, this is the covenant that I will make with you after those days, declare the Lord. I will put the laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these sins, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brother, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. This is how we draw near. There is a covenant that God made that he wrote in stone, knowing that that could not actually transform because man cannot be transformed by the external. He can only be transformed by the internal. And he gave in Jeremiah 31, 33, and he says, there will come a day where the covenant will not be written on stone anymore. I'm going to write it on the very hearts of men. So it's no longer an external thing that you're trying to change, but your very hearts will now breathe and bleed with the commands and the law and the hope that is in God. I'm going to write them on your heart so that you may know what I value so that you may know yourself how much I value you, that I want to be near you. And the way we get near God is having our hearts sprinkled clean and our conscience washed. And this can only happen through Jesus Christ's death and resurrection on the cross. This is how we get near to God. This is how we get that third part. Illumination, fine. Space, fine. People can seek God with all their heart. They can be ready to have it written on it. But unless their heart is sprinkled clean, unless they are cleansed by the blood of Jesus, they cannot come near to him to have the writing on it. They will only go away. We must have that. Later on in Hebrews 11 says this, Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. To draw near, we must believe that he died for us. This is how we have the written word in our hearts. We draw near to him and as a loving Loving God, he comes to us. And with this, he writes what he values in our hearts so that his values become our values. And what he says is good, we start saying, that is good. And what he calls evil, we say, that is evil. And what he blesses, we bless. Because he's written on our heart. There's been an internal change. When Jesus points the finger at our life, it is not to condemn. Just as this lady 
who was caught in adultery. It was not to condemn. He did not write on the ground condemnation against her. When Jesus points the finger at our life, it is not to condemn, but to show what must change. What is not ours, what is not us. Sometimes we stop at only seeing the finger pointing at us. We don't wait for that finger to change to the finger that beckons us to come closer, come near, come. Let me put my values in your heart. Let me put what I value in you so that you may value what I value. The finger that points is the finger that turns to the one that beckons us near. Come, come near. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. The finger of God has come to call those to repentance, to call those who are in need of salvation. He says, come, come near, and I will give you values that are eternal. We're going to take communion together now. And this is a very different type of taking a cup and a drink to what Belshazzar took. One which was very different in remembrance of things that are very, very earthly in Belshazzar's time. Now we're taking something, communion, which means something very, very heavenly. And as we take communion, um, can, I, can I get a few guys um, to bring the table down the front, actually, please? Yeah, thanks. No one saw that, Simon. And what we're going to do is a little bit different to what we would traditionally do. But what I would like you to do is you to come forward. And as you come forward to take communion at the front and to, uh, for those who are believers in Jesus, whose Jesus is their Lord and Savior, this is, this is a meal for us to remember what he has done. And as we take this, we want to remember that the, the external laws cannot change us, but the, that Jesus has come to write his values upon our hearts. And this is done only through the washing of the heart that can only happen through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And as you come forward, um, I would encourage, I would ask that you take the bread and the wine here at the table and then uh, return back to your seats. And out of this, we want to show that actually the nearness that God is calling us to is reflected in the communion we take now. It's reflected in the very reason we take this is because Jesus says, there is nothing now that separates you from coming near. Come near, let me shine upon you. Give space in your heart for me to write my values. Come near, there is nothing now that separates. And as we do this, let us remember what Jesus said on the night he was betrayed. And the Apostle Paul says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, 
that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as we eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I invite you to come forward now to receive communion. Lord Jesus, we... We remember your death. We remember your resurrection. And we remember that you're coming back again. We thank you that it is by your blood, Lord Jesus, that our hearts are sprinkled clean, that I washed clean, that the slate is now free. It is available now for you to write your values upon our hearts. We ask that this week, this day, that we would live these values. There is often we fall short. Often I fall short of living the values you have written on my heart. But that is not the end. The end is that you have not returned yet and there is still hope that I would sin less in my life. And the hope is this, that the Lord beckons us near. His finger that writes upon our heart is the one that says, come near to me. So we pray that this week that as you illuminate things in our lives that needs to be removed so that there is space for your values, we would not just see it as you pointing something out and us moving away, but that it would be that moment where we wait for that finger to turn and say, come near so I may put my values in you. Thank you that you are the hope of the world, Lord Jesus. You are the light of the world. And we pray that we may live as those who are in the light. In Jesus' name, amen.